0: Welcome to Bringing Truth to Life. My name is Henry Clay, and we hope you enjoy this series of messages on getting to know God better. Continuing in our series, Growing in Knowing Him, my name is Henry Clay. And one of the things we've been looking at is the question at the beginning of the Catechism, what is the chief and highest end of man? Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. You, you wonder what the difference between the larger and the shorter catechism is? Let me read you the answer from the larger catechism. Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and to fully enjoy him forever. So see, that's harder, so they shortened it. Uh, I'm sure some of the ones, they shortened more than that, but anyway. I, I, I found that very interesting. Uh, so we're, well, we're, we're, last week we were looking at how... We were tracing the the glory of God through the Old Testament because one of the things that limits us in our understanding of spiritual truth is that we think we know. We think we understand something. That's what messes up a lot of people when they get married. If you ask, uh, we went to a wedding last night. If you ask the Brian Groom, a week beforehand, do you know what love is? Well, sure I know what love is. Well, do you know what marriage is? Yes, I know what marriage is. Do you know basically how to have a happy marriage? Yes, I'm convinced. That's why I'm going to get married. Were you planning on getting a divorce? No. And, uh, And yet, so many within, you know, the statistics are pretty high these days. Years later, they realize that something went wrong. And part of what goes wrong often is, we think we know something and we really don't, or what we, our concept of it is off, but that's what we think it is, so that's what we're going on, and only too late, perhaps we find out that was the wrong road. And this, I think that happens with us when we talk about glory and glorifying God. We have kind of a general bright, shiny sort of an idea of what that looks like or what that is. But if you were asked to, well, well, tell me a little more in detail. What, what do you mean? What is that? We realized that uh, we could grow in our understanding there. And just to review real briefly, um, last week we looked at how the glory of God appeared in the burning bush to Moses. And then in the wilderness, it said there, the Israelites had come out across the Red Sea and they're off in the wilderness at one point. All of a sudden they saw the glory of God, and that's the first mention of anybody of a group of people seeing the glory of God in the whole Old Testament was that moment in the wilderness. Then they get to Mount Sinai, and there's the cloud and the lightning and everything up on the mountain, and they could see the the presence and the glory of God. Then they build the tabernacle, which is the portable te- temple that they could fold down and carry with them and then set back up. And it said once they did the offerings and dedication, the glory of the Lord appeared, and they couldn't even get near it. It was like it was radioactive or something, and then Solomon built a temple, and that was a fixed uh, building, very, very large, and when they did the dedication, again, the, this, whatever this is, the kabod in the Hebrew, this gl- presence, this glory appeared in the temple, and it said the, the for that for a while couldn't even get near it because of whatever that was. Then they, there were all the years of the kings and David and all of that and they, the thing went, got worse and worse and worse and God says, if you don't get better, I'm going to judge you and he finally did judge them in 586 and Jerusalem was taken, the temple was destroyed. They were in, the cap- in captivity for how long? 70 years in captivity and then they came back and they built another temple. You see, this is what it took us to do last week, this is all of last week here. Uh, I can't even see some of the people over there now, but... Um, so they, they dedicate the temple again and there's silence. The glory doesn't come back. And then there's the, the rest of the 400 years up until, leading up until Christ and there was no visible glory of God. Then we looked at how it was promised in the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, the Lord, it says the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. He will come back. It's not just all over Uh, He will come back. And then you remember the passage uh, that they quote every Christmas time and there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field. And what happened to those shepherds out in that field that night? The glory of the Lord appeared. Now, nobody had seen this for 500 years. We think, well, you know, probably this happened from time to time. You know, it was the Holy Land, and that's the place where God is and glory is. And, but no, I mean, it had been 500 years. It, would, it had been as long as from now back to Martin Luther. Since the last time anyone could say, a group of people could say, we saw the glory of the Lord. So today we want to, we want to look at three, three things in terms of his glory. Uh, We're going to start off in in Exodus 33. We also mentioned last week that what does the word glory originally mean? It doesn't mean light or sparkliness or uh, uranium or flash. Its basic meaning is heavy or heaviness or abundance or weightiness. Because normally when you think of something light, you think of something not heavy. But this is because... His, his glory, it relates to who He is and His presence. There isn't anything any heavier than that. You may remember from Psalm 1, that short little psalm that begins all the 150 psalms. It's just six verses long. And it talks that, about the righteous being like a tree and the wicked being like... Does anybody remember? That funny word. Chaff. I'm hearing it. I'm hearing it, chaff out there. And chaff is the husk, the tiny little light husk that once it falls off the grain and you go, like that, it it blows off your hand. Now, if you walk up to a tree and you go, everybody's going to think you're crazy, but I mean, nothing's going to happen to the tree. Uh, Maybe you can make a a leaf move, but you're not even going to blow a leaf off one of the branches. But if you breathe on chaff like that, it goes flying. And it says, uh, a righteous person is heavy, a wicked person is light when God's <laughs> winds of judgment blow. And so his glory, uh, the original meaning of that is heavy. And I was thinking if I were to try to define glory, uh, this is my working definition right now, I would say it's the reality of his presence and the demonstration of his marvelousness. I made that word up. but uh, <laughs> the rea- and, and I was noticing today, I've, somebody just given me this book, uh, The, uh, the Purpose Driven Life, and it just happened that this very morning as I'd finished thinking about all this, I opened up to chapter 7, and, um, and the second paragraph in the chapter I was going to read is, starts this way, What is the glory of God? I think now that's timing, isn't it? Yeah. So let me read you what, what he put. I thought he did it, said it even better. It is who God is. Now he's talking about what is the glory of God. It is who God is. It is the essence of his nature, the weight of his importance, the radiance of his splendor, the demonstration of his power, and the atmosphere of his presence. That's worth cross-stitching and putting on the wall, isn't it? (laughs) God's glory is the expression of his goodness and all his other intrinsic eternal qualities. Wow. Well, let's look in Exodus 33. This is a passage we looked at. At another time in greater depth, but we want to particularly look at this issue of his glory. And in Exodus thirty three, eighteen, Moses is in his time with God and, and he says, Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. Now this is Exodus thirty-three. So they've already crossed the Red Sea. I think I mean God's already shown them tons of stuff. The ten plagues, the parting of the Red Sea. They've already gotten manna from heaven. I think the quail have already come, uh, fallen out of the sky, so they could have a barbecue. And and Moses says, "Well, show me your glory." I says, "What? Well, good grief! I mean, what more do you want? I mean, uh, uh, you know, God had shown him so many things. He he'd already gone up on the mountain. He'd heard God's voice. He'd seen the 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 cloud, the lightning, the thunder. And you're thinking." what has he got in his head that he's asking for what, what more do you want to see I mean most of us if we saw all of that we'd say well now I can, I can die in peace I've seen the Lord and yet Moses ends his time with the Lord saying show me your glory there's always more to God and too often we have been satisfied with so little we think oh yeah yeah I know God the Bible yeah I've been in that since I was a child you know uh, I wouldn't say I'm an, I'm an expert, but uh, pretty much familiar with all of that. And uh, God is wonderful. I'm sure he's impressed with how faithful I've been and how much I know. But Moses, it says, Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth. And Moses knew that even with all that he'd seen, they'd only scratched the surface. There is so much more to God than what we have seen and heard and experienced in our life. Are you hungry to find it, to see it, to experience it? This really is the Holy Grail. They talk about, you know, the the Raiders of the Lost Ark and that third one, they were looking for the cup, you know, that's called the Holy Grail that Christ had at the Last Supper. And they, you know, and people end up dying and they spend all this money and they get all sweaty and hot and look for things and, and just to get this cup. What is the Holy Grail? What is the pearl of great price? It's Him. Count von Sinsendorf says, I have only one passion. It is Him and Him alone. It's to know Him. And so you think, well, what's God going to say? Show me your glory. Um, Well, let's look. See what he says. In verse 19, The Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name the Lord, in your presence. And so he doesn't say, well, I'm going to stand back, and let me show you, how I can blast the top off of this mount. Or, or it's going to show you a really bright light, or I'm going to bring down the angel choirs. What would God show him to show him to answer this prayer? And he says, well, you really want to see my glory? Catch that phrase. I will cause all my goodness to pass before you. Isn't that wonderful? Verse 20, but he said, You cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. Well, he thought, well if he's so good, how come he's so dangerous? Well, that's kind of the enigma of God. Um, he is so holy, and our sinfulness, we talked about the other day, is sort of like gasoline. So we're sort of like dressed in gasoline-soaked rags, and we want to draw near to this raging fire uh, because he's holy. And he says uh, it just it's a chemical reaction you bring what's unholy into the presence of what's holy, and it's consumed. And so God is trying to figure out, well, how can I show Moses my glory without killing him? Because I, I kind of like this guy, you know. And so he says, well, he says, I've got it. I said, I've got this place, and we can make this. There's this crevice in the rock. I'll hide you there. I'll cover you with my hand. I'll walk by so that uh, with the most of the danger is past, and then I'll let you see the, the part of it but the part that won't kill you. It's a very interesting passage to think about. Verse 22, when my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. 23, then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face you must not see. And in Exodus 34, then the Lord passes in front of him. And uh, in verse 6, he proclaims, it says he proclaims the name of the Lord as he goes by. And listen to what he says, verse 6. The Lord, the Lord. This is the, the term we get Jehovah from in the, in the original Hebrew. The compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the, the children and their children for the sin of the fathers. To the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. Luther called this the sermon on the name of the Lord. Uh, in Kyle and Delich, it says, um, "I really liked how it how it said this." It said, "It disclosed to Moses the most hidden nature of Jehovah. It proclaimed that God is love, but that kind of love in which mercy, grace." Long-suffering goodness and truth are united with holiness and justice. All words which the language contained to express the idea of grace in its various manifestations to the sinner are crowded together here to reveal the fact that in His inmost being, God is love. But in order that grace may not be perverted by sinners into a ground of wantonness or sin, justice is not lacking even here with its solemn threatenings although it only follows mercy to show that mercy is mightier than wrath. He says, you really want to know me deep down. He says, you'll let me proclaim in your heart that I'm a God of love and mercy. So when we think about what is God's glory, what is the essence of his glory? The, uh, forgiveness is always presented in the scripture as available to any who will seek it. But for those who insist on refusing God's offer of love and forgiveness and turning their back on God, God says they will not be forgiven. There must be a faith response. There must be a turning to God in order for him to give what what he is offering. We we experience a, a similar thing in any of our relationships uh, any, any relationship that involves two people, and that's what we call a relationship, right? I mean, if you're just by yourself, who you, there's nobody there. I'm alone. If there's somebody else involved, it takes certain things, uh, attitudes on the part of both people to overcome whatever differences there might be. And if one person uh, is open and humble and ready and everything, but the other person absolutely refuses... That relationship cannot be restored. Even God couldn't do it. A perfect God pursuing a lost humanity, he did everything right. He had all the right attitudes, all the right actions, said all the right words, and yet not everyone will be saved. Not everyone will go to heaven. There must be a response on the part of that lost sheep that is being sought. And God is, uh, one of the things we, we forget is if the universe was set up, we're sort of digressing here, but anyway, if the universe was set up just with what we understand to be love and without justice, the whole thing would collapse. It's God's justice that are sort of like the, the steel reinforced rods and beams that hold everything in place and, uh, and censure what is bad and promote what is good. And so one of the things that where why we can even sleep at night in a, in a cruel and unjust world is knowing it won't always be that way. God eventually will um, punish the wicked and those that, that did evil and wouldn't turn from it, and he will eventually reward those that have been made right through Jesus Christ. Well, let's move on to the second topic here. I brought a, an illustration here. Because we want to talk a little bit about idolatry, and my I have a stuffed bunny here. I was looking for this neat cow I have that does the chicken dance, but I couldn't find it, so I just had to bring a, this, this bunny. But my question is, is this bunny an idol? It's not an idol. To a child it might be, aha! Uh-huh. Could we make turn it into an idol? Okay, it's what we do with it that could make it an idol, not what it is in itself. So we want to look for a minute with that uh, small introduction. That's Sinai, where we were just up on the mountain with Moses. And the second one is um, we want to turn to Ezekiel. That's after Psalms. That's about two-thirds of the way through your Bible. And it's a nice big book, so you probably stumble across it. Ezekiel chapter 8. But as you recall where we began... We talked about how on the tabernacle and then on the temple, the glory of the Lord came down, and uh, the nation was very, very disobedient, and so it came to a point where the temple was destroyed, and for 70 years they were in captivity. Now, right before the temple was destroyed and Jerusalem was sacked, Ezekiel, who was already in Babylon in captivity because they took... People in several, several different stages. One day he's just sitting there and he says, the, the Spirit of the Lord came and caught me up by a lock of my hair, whatever exactly that means. He must not have been bald. Maybe he had a ponytail or something. But anyway, it said he took me by my hair in the Spirit to Jerusalem and he shows him the temple. And he walks him around this temple. He takes Ezekiel in almost in like a dream to the temple. And he's going to show him the current situation. Because the question for the Israelites would be, why is God so mad with us? We still have the temple. We're still doing the sacrifices. What's the, what's the big problem? Why are these prophets being so negative all the time? We want a, we want a happy message. And he says, well, no, if you don't repent, it's the Babylonians are going to come. It's going to be terrible. They're going to, you're going to die horrible deaths, etc. cetera. And says, we says, we, we don't like that message. And so the question is, before this destruction of the temple, uh, God in his love wants to show them why it is that he would go to such measures. So what the doctor does to you, if, if he's going to have to um, cut you open with a, with a one-foot incision, and he says it's going to be a two-year recovery, and, and you're thinking, I thought I had the flu. Uh, are you going to be very cooperative in this operation? <laughs> I'm going to get another doctor. You know, this is ridiculous. I, I, you know, cold, the flu. I mean, why do you have to cut me? And the doctor will sit you down and says, well, we've discovered that that's not what you have, et cetera." Et cetera. And he will lay it all out, and you'll turn pale, and you'll get on the tail and says, okay, cut me. <laughs> now, what's happening with this vision in all of chapter 8, is God is saying, I want to show you, Ezekiel, and then you tell everybody else why it is that I'm going to have to do these terrible things. It's because the situation has gotten this bad. And he shares four, he shows him four different things. Look in verse 3. He stretched out what looked like a hand and took me by the hair of my head. The Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven in visions of God. He took me to Jerusalem, to the entrance uh, to the north gate of the inner court, where the idol that provokes to jealousy stood. So there was an idol set up in the very temple of God, probably an Asherah. It's a wooden symbol of a female deity. It's a fertility goddess. It's the wife of Baal. So, 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 um, and Manasseh had done this already in 2 Kings chapter 21. He, right in the temple he put this idol. So now, before they would hide it up in the, up in the, on a high hill or something. Now they've got one a big one right there in the temple. It would be like putting up a, a, a big portrait of Saddam Hussein in the Lincoln Memorial. I mean, it's like, what, what is this doing here, you know, <laughs> or Hitler or something? Verse 6, he said to me, son of man, do you see? And this phrase, do you see, appears four, also four times. He says, do you see this? Have you seen this? Are you, are you watching this? Are you paying attention? Verse 10, we see the second one. So I went and looked and saw portrayed all over the walls. He's, he gets him to dig down into the uh, there's some side court buildings or rooms off on the sides of the temple where the priests would meet. And he and he gets Ezekiel. He says he says I want you to dig through verse eight. Now dig into the wall and he digs and there's a finds a doorway. Well in verse ten this is sort of like an archaeological dig or something. He he's peering through this hole he's dug in the wall, like some of the dreams you've had maybe. And he says, all over the walls, all kinds of crawling things and detestable animals and all the idols of the house of Israel. In front of them, who does he see standing there? Verse 11, stood 70 elders of the house of Israel. Each had a censer in his hand and had a fragrant cloud of incense. Incense was the image of prayer. They were offering prayer in a secret place. Why 70? That was the number of the Sanhedrin. This was like the Senate. This was the leaders of the nation there. Uh, in hidden secret idolatry. Verse 12, son of man, have you seen what they are doing? And then verse 14, he brought me to the north gate of the house and I saw women sitting there weeping for Tammuz. You think, who is Tammuz? Well, that's a Mesopotamian god that every fall supposedly would die and when the leaves withered and everything. And then in the spring he'd be reborn. And so there was a ritual mourning in the fall saying, oh, okay, let's cry for him, and so he'll come back to life, sort of a thing, like clapping for the fairy, you know, and Peter Pan, you know, clap loud enough, and the fairy will come, you know, this sort of a thing. But you know, this is also happening in the temple. These, uh, They're going through this ritual mourning for this other God. Verse 15, do you see this, son of man, you will see things that are even more detestable than this. And then in verse 16, then he brought me into the inner court of the, house of the Lord, and there at the entrance to the temple, so that would be right here, at the entrance of the temple, between the portico and the altar. This is the portico, the, the, where the columns are, and down here is the altar where they would offer the animals. And so there were 25 men here, and instead of facing toward the temple, it says they were facing east toward the sun. They had their backs to God, in a sense, and to the Ark of the Covenant. And they were worshipping, they were bowing down to the sun in the east. They were worshipping the created rather than the creator. And he says, he says, that's why we're going to have to judge this city. And so then in the next three chapters we see the, the glory of the Lord lift up. He watches it as it leaves the temple as it departs from the city. And only after that to the Babylonians take and destroy the city and the temple. But the glory departed from where it had been. And we face a similar thing in our own lives. Would you say that the glory of God is in your life? His presence, His reality, His joy? Is it just the shell of where there once was glory? And you go through the motions like they did after the glory left. Why does the glory of God depart from the temple? Why does the glory of God depart from our lives? The conclusion I reached as I read this passage and studied it was that the glory of God always leaves for the same reason. I'll say that again the glory of God from a, from a nation, from the temple, from a human heart, if he leaves, he always leaves for the same reason. <coughs> it's idolatry. Has it ever caused you to wonder why in the world in the Ten Commandments, if you're only going to tell somebody ten things that they needed to do, why the two, first two would deal, and a fifth of all the Ten Commandments deal with idolatry? Idolatry. Now again, we're back to our bunny here. You know, uh, is is it idolatry to have this bunny in here? Heavens, you know. So when someone take this out, uh, uh, what what makes that bunny an idol? It's the it's what I do with that bunny. It's any anything or any person I put in God's place in my heart. Now we normally have ways of thinking about things so that we always are okay. No, no, it's just, that that's not really what I th- it's just that it's this or that or the other. But God sees past any of the m- mental contortions we go through to say that whatever we're doing is okay. And God can reveal to our heart, is there some problem, is there something in my heart that is keeping God at a distance? Because he won't share that place in my heart with anyone else. I mean, looking back again on those four things, the idol of jealousy. What person or thing have you set up in the temple of your heart? And you say, without this, I can't live. Well, an idol is something that you trust in, that you're taken with, that you say, this is this is my what I really live for. Without this, I wouldn't have life. This is where I find my fulfillment, my joy. With the uh, the second one, where they were down in that room, hidden room, is it what, when you think of your own heart, what's carved on the secret places of the walls of your heart? What's down there, deep down that nobody sees? The women that were weeping, what do you cry about? Do you cry about your pains and your problems? or do you, are you more moved by your sins and the ways you might fail the Lord? Those things are related to idolatry and with those that were worshiping the sun, have you also, in a a sense, turned your back on God? Do nature and leisure activities get your best attention and efforts? These are things we, we can't go into as much as we'd like to today. But this is a key principle in the Scripture, that if the glory of God has departed from your life, And you, in a secret place in your heart, you have a feeling, as soon as I say that question, kind of where you would locate yourself. No one else judging you don't need to. Uh, You stand before God. And you know whether or not you're really experiencing the glory of God or not. And I think one of the clear teachings of Scripture is if you're not experiencing His glory, probably the reason is there's some problem with idolatry there. Well, what's the road back We're on to the third point? Let's just suppose you would say, well, yeah, the, the, the glory has departed from my life. Could, I'm sure it could be worse. Well, verse, verse 3 says, A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And many of you have heard this in a song. It's a beautiful thing. You think, but why does a God who is everywhere need a road? he' we we need a road because we're in one place and we need to get to another place and we need a way to get there. And so we walk along a road until we get there. God is here and he's also there. I mean, if you were filling this whole room, if you'd really pigged out this week, you know. And uh, somehow gotten into this room, you're not going to get out, you know, if you fill the whole room. I says, well, well, go two feet to the left. Well, I can't. I mean, I'm I'm already touching both walls. Uh, And we think of God being omnipresent. What does he need a road for? Well, this, um, uh, when we go to the New Testament and to the fulfillment of this promise, it's in John the Baptist. Because the very same passage is quoted. A voice call. He's the voice calling in the wilderness. He was out in the wilderness. And what was John the Baptist's message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he would also talk about the Messiah. After me, one is coming. But his his big uh, message point each time was to repent. And they wait a minute. I thought it was uh, making this road in the desert. What 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 happened to the road, the interstate that we were going to build? He says, well, the road isn't in on the land. It's in the human heart. And where God is going to enter, it says in verse 5, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. It's going to be in a prepared human heart that, that has repented. And, and every valley will be lifted up, every, every proud mountain brought low, that you've prepared a highway in your heart for the Lord, to receive him through your surrender and your turning to him. In the Old Testament, when a king would be coming, that he would send his corps of engineers out ahead of time, because they didn't want to, you know, his whatever he was riding in to, to be too bumpy or tip over. So they would they, to the degree they could level things out and find the smoothest way they, they would do that. And that's the picture that's being used here, because God is the king. But God wants to reveal his glory in you and in me. The same glory that was in the Old Testament. His presence, His marvelousness. So the three things we've looked at today are the heart of His glory is His goodness. His goodness. Two, if His glory has departed from your life, it is probably because of idolatry. And three, the way back to Him and His glory in your life is repentance and surrender. In Ephesians chapter 2, we won't look at it, but at the very end of, the, of Ephesians chapter 2, it says that we are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. It's not just that God wants to reveal His life and His glory in one particular person, but that we're all like living stones and He builds us together. That's why people say, well, I can worship God off in the woods. You know, I don't need to go to this church kind of thing. Well, the Bible always Someone once said, the, the decision to receive Christ is individual. But the Christian life is always corporate. It always involves other believers. And if someone doesn't want to be around other believers, it's usually because they're not one. And he says, we're being built together into a dwelling place of God. It's the Old Testament temple. And once again, he says, the glory of the Lord is going to be Revealed. And in Isaiah, he said, and all flesh will see it together. So as we think about glorifying God and enjoying him forever, one of the ways of glorifying God is being filled with his presence. Being caught up with his wonderfulness. To be a carrier and conduit of his life, you must clean out the temple and earnestly seek To see his glory. To be filled with that petition that Moses had. Lord, show me thy glory. There are times we haven't prayed that because I guess we think, "Well, well, who am I? Or we think, well, I'll ask that and he won't do anything. But we need to learn from Moses. who'd already seen so much, but he was hungry to see more. Are you hungry for more of God? More of his glory. It's not just a show you go to. You know, you pay the entrance of, you know, well, what do I need to do? Give, give 15% instead of 10% of the church? Or do I need to maybe uh, another thing a service? Uh, just like paying for the movie price to get in to see the show. He says, he says that the key of the Christian life, he says, it's, it, it's, like, it's like a marriage. God says, I want absolutely all of you. And he says, I'm going to give you absolutely all of me. Lord, show me thy glory. He wants to show you something so much more than you've ever seen before. But he needs the response in our heart, saying, Lord, yes, please. The expectation. Not saying, well, you probably won't show me anything. You you show it to other people. You're probably not going to show it to me. No, we need to have a confident expectation. God has promised. We know this is what he wants to do. Now, it may not be instant what somebody said. I can't remember where I heard it, but uh, said one of the things we, we learned from going through the whole scriptures is God is not in a hurry. So, I mean, it, it may take longer than we wanted. What Gil said, it may come in a different way than we expected, but it will come. God cannot lie. He has bound himself in the eternal oath in the scripture. He says, if you seek me, You will find me when you seek me with all your heart. He's got a whole lot more for you and for me. Will we seek it? Let's close in prayer. You are wonderful, Lord. And if we will seek you, you will make all of your goodness pass before our eyes. Please forgive us for the times we've taken things and people and activities Pleasures and hobbies and pursuits and somehow cluttered up the temple in our heart. Not that those things are bad. There's nothing bad with this bunny, Lord. But I can put it in the wrong place. I can give it the wrong meaning. And I can be distracted by it. Lord, we want to be more distracted by you, more caught up with you. Not so much because you require it, but because you are the most fascinating person in the universe. We ask you to draw us away from the junk food of this world and to feed us with true bread. We want to see your glory. Please, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us on Bringing Truth to Life. If you like our content, please subscribe and give us a review. This helps more people find our podcast.